As we open your word, we open our hearts, we reach out our hands to you and say, yes, Lord, lead us in your way. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. This is why we're starting the year with a month-long sermon series called Salt Life, because we think it's likely we're going to see more and more of this this year. And we believe that the Jesus that we follow wants something different. He wants to see more and more of this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, as you likely know, salt was used as a preservative throughout the ancient world. And that's the primary way the church has understood that metaphor that Jesus used, that, and that that's what it means to be salt, that it's our job to stop the spread of corruption and rot. And in a lot of ways, that is how we've placed ourselves in relationship to the world around us. But I believe that to its detriment, the church has long overlooked the fact that salt was understood perhaps even better in terms of a metaphor in the ancient world as a metaphor for hospitality, for turning strangers into friends and family by sharing a meal with them around your table, opening up your heart to them and sharing with them that which you valued most, your precious salt. In Mark chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus calls us to have salt among ourselves inside the church as followers of his. And then he goes on to say that means to live at peace with one another. And then in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, he tells us to season our conversation with salt, and he goes on with, with those who are outside the church, and he goes on to explain that that means with grace. So peace and grace are the outworking of our being salty people. Hence the, uh, the sermon series title. As we wrestle with what it means to live a salty life. So today we are diving into the third of the themes we're looking at, and this is uh, focusing on how to love those who don't act like us. But we're really intending to, to widen this out to include all those that it is difficult for us to get along with because of them, because of us. How do we love those who are unloving toward us and whose lives we think would be an offense to God? The passage we're looking at today comes uh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 43 to 48. And let me tell you why this particular passage is so important to the covenant church family today. Turns out it's the exact same reason that this passage that we are looking at today, during the first 300 years of the life of the church, was the passage of scripture that more people memorized than any other passage. And it was the same passage that more pastors taught and preached on than any other passage, at least based on the historical record that we have. 
So just over four years ago, at the end of a prayerful six-month-long discernment process, the session and the staff came to you with our sense that God was calling us together as a church to learn what it means to live a life of love, using the phrase that comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and it talks about patterning our lives after the sacrificial life of Jesus. More than that, we said, we believe that God was inviting us to come to be known more and more in our community for our love more than for anything else. We believe that God was calling us to live in such a way that the people who sit in the desk next to us at school, the people who work in the office across from ours at work, the people who live in the houses or apartments on either side of us in our neighborhoods, that the thing that they would know about us more than anything else is our love for them as we seek to love Jesus, to love his people, and to pour out his love on the world. I know that I'm not alone in finding that that sense of calling that God is bringing us into as a church is challenging and begins to surface all kinds of really challenging questions. Lots of, but wait a minute questions. Well, what do we mean exactly when we are talking about loving those that God has placed around us? I mean, how far do we go? Where are the lines? When does loving sinners become condoning their sin? What if someone is just outright evil? Aren't there limits to love? And, and when should this whole love project stop and the truth-telling project kick in? I believe that the passage that we are looking at today goes a long way toward answering these questions that all of us have been wrestling with over the last four years. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Let's walk through it. We'll make some observations along the way. And I think we'll discover as we go that there's a clearer and clearer invitation that God's putting before us as his people. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is teaching a huge crowd of people there in the hill country on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he is introducing to them his teaching about what the kingdom of God is all about. Or in other words, what does it mean, what will it mean for us when we recognize and give our allegiance to Jesus as king? So Jesus often in his teaching quotes Old Testament passages of scripture. And whenever he does, he always introduces them in the same way. He always says, it says, or scripture says, or Isaiah says. But here he says, you've heard that it was said. So clearly Jesus is pointing to something other than something the scriptures teach. The interesting thing though, then is that the, the first part of this phrase that he is reminding them of love your neighbor, actually comes straight from the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, I think that says 18, one of those. My eyes aren't quite working here. Later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22, we'll find out just how important that passage is for Jesus. It's a defining part of his understanding of what it means to honor and live for God. So that first Clause is found in the Bible, but, and this is important for us to recognize, 
since the time that it was written, 1,500 years before the time that Jesus is teaching, the meaning of this passage and its significance has drifted. So by the time of Jesus, the Jews have, have narrowed down the meaning of this word neighbor, and now for them, it means something a lot closer to our own people. Later on in his teaching, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus will make sure that his hearers recalibrate their understanding of what that word neighbor actually means, which is any person nearby who is in need. So the first clause, even if its meaning, as its, um, even as its meaning has been narrowed, is one that comes from the scripture. But this second clause, hate your enemy, isn't found anywhere in the scriptures. We're told to hate evil, such as in Amos chapter 5, 16, and, or 15, and Psalm 97, 10, but we're never hold, told to hate our enemy. So over time, the call to love our neighbor has been whittled down into a sort of special category of people that we consider worthy of being loved by us, And then, by implication, it puts everybody else in this other category. A group of people who, by implication, should not have the same regard from us as those who are our own people, and especially those people who are rude to us, or worse, who are hostile towards us. Those people By implication, of course, trying to be faithful to what it means to love our neighbors, our own people, those people we should hate, says the current cultural wisdom. The word means, this word hate, means putting them in a separate category and treating them differently, pushing them away, whether by actively hating them or simply by being indifferent to them, disregarding them, treating them as though they don't matter to us and they don't matter to God not treating them like those that we like and those who like us. So what what Jesus is picking up and and examining in the company of these hearers in the Sermon on the Mount is this scrap of spiritual wisdom that has gained a foothold in the surrounding culture that sounds a whole lot like Scripture and that, that incorporates Scripture but isn't. And in fact, it is at odds with what the Scriptures teach. It's like a callus has grown over one of the most important laws in all of the Old Testament, hardening into this posture that says loving our neighbor is conditioned on their being worthy of our love. But if there's hostility between us, if they've wronged us or someone we love, well then, we are off the hook and we can treat them in return, based on how they've treated us, with anything ranging from indifference to outright hostility that mirrors their own towards us. Jesus calls his followers to something different, something really, really radically different. So you've heard that it was said, love your, en- or love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I tell you, Jesus says. He doesn't refer to some outside authority. He speaks out of his own unique authority as the divine incarnate promised king who has come to us from on high. 
He speaks with divine authority. This isn't my suggestion. It's my command. You call me king. This is what I'm commanding you as your king. An enemy is someone, this is the the root of this word, is the idea of someone being hostile towards us. Love them, Jesus says. That is, don't see them through the lens of how they see you and treat you. See them with reference to God, keeping God in the picture. See them as men and women who are created in God's image and treat them according to that. A person who persecutes is someone who makes life difficult for us, someone who has it out for us. Pray for them. That is, ask and seek God's best for them. Invite God's blessing on them and be part of the blessing that you are praying for them. Jesus says there may well be two different ways that people, that others will relate to us. Some treating us with respect and making life a pleasure. Others treating us with hostility and making life hard for us. But, according to Jesus, there can't be two different ways that we relate to them. We are called to love them all. And now he goes on and tells us why we can't put people into two categories, those we love and those we don't. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why should we love all indiscriminately? Because when we act that way, we are acting like the father whose children we are. And when we do that, we give the world a picture of what God is like. And when we do that, we are fulfilling one of the most important aspects of our, of our calling as followers of Christ as we live out our days on this earth, to put the loving character of God on display. Jesus says, people should be able to learn about the God that we love by watching the way that we treat them. It's important to see that he doesn't say, so try really hard to imitate God. He says, be who you are. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, all who receive him to those who believe in his name, Jesus gives them the right to become children of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, how incredible that we would be called the children of God, and that is in fact what we are through Christ. The Christian life is not about us trying hard to meet a standard that God puts before us, trying hard to be like God. It's about our starting over with a new birth from the inside out as God places his spirit within us. We are born into the family of God, and as we grow and mature, as God empowers us more and more, we will inevitably bear a a family resemblance to our heavenly Father. And nowhere will that be more evident than in the way we respond to those who are hostile to us 
and make life hard for us. That will be one of our distinguishing qualities as followers of Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's the reason Jesus commands us to love all equally, both those who are pleasant to us and make life a joy for us and those who are hostile to us and have it out for us to put the love of God on display. So in what way exactly are we called to do that? In in what ways are we called to be like God? Is there some quality of the Father's love that Jesus has in mind that he wants us to imitate in our dealings with uh, our enemies? Well, knowing that God is both a loving God and a holy God, we might be tempted to think that the way that we are called to imitate God in our dealings with our enemies is to give the smackdown to our enemies in the same sort of way that God seemed at times to do in the Old Testament to his enemies. But Jesus goes a completely different direction. Here's how you should show yourself to be children of your heavenly father. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And just think for a moment about the role of the sun and the rain in a culture that depends on crops and herds for food. These are not like um, nice uh, tourist features of an attractive place to go and to hang out for a while. The sun and the rain are utterly vital for life. They meet a person's deepest needs, and without them, nothing would grow and life would be impossible. In love, God lets his sun shine down on and his rain wash over those who are bad and those who are good alike, bringing them life. Notice that the love of God is not blind to wrongdoing. It is clear in this passage that some people live in a way that is an offense to God and he sees it and he knows it. This is not about being morally blind. Evil refers to everything on a spectrum from annoying to wicked. And unrighteous means wronging other people, failing to treat them right and doing them wrong instead. And God is not saying that love means that we close our eyes to moral categories and lay down our moral standards. Jesus acknowledges that there are some who will encou- we will encounter who fit in the category more of good and righteous and others who fit more in a category of evil or unrighteous. But when it comes to a life-giving posture of generosity towards others, to seeing and meeting needs, God does not hold back from the undeserving. Those moral assessments and categories do not inform his generosity. Not in the least. He generously gives to all that which gives them life. And notice this is not just some sort of passive spillover from the care that God is providing for the good people and the deserving people who live nearby. This isn't like a a sprinkler that you put in your yard that inadvertently waters the corner of your neighbor's yard. In his generosity, God moves towards those who are bad, those who do wrong, 
and he provides actively for their needs. The language of intentionality is so clear. It says God causes his son to rise on them. God sends rain on them. This is the very same heart posture that we see unfolded and that we are invited into in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, where it says that God's people who are in exile, which is a great way for us to understand ourselves as we live out our days in pilgrimage here, God's people who are in exile are to actively seek the welfare of the people that God places around them, whether or not we agree with them or like them. That's what Jesus invites us and commands us to do, to love all indiscriminately. He doesn't say love when or love if or love until or love unless. He says love. Now by this point, I think you have probably seen as we've been going along, we've begun to flesh out three different dimensions of what real love includes. That might be part of our definition of the love that we're called into, whether it be love for our neighbor or love for our enemy. It is crucial that we notice this. Love doesn't have anything to do with our feelings. Nothing. Biblical love isn't a windsock that blows with the prevailing winds of emotion. Love is a choice irrespective of our feelings. It is first, as we've seen, a choice to see the other person with reference to the God who created them. To see them as someone created in the image of God and therefore deserving of our regard. Second, love is a choice to seek God's best for that person and to be part of the answer to that prayer to bless that person. And third, love is a choice to move toward them with indiscriminate, life-giving generosity, responding to needs rather than responding to how we have been treated, even when it costs us, which it inevitably will. Why do we love this way? Not because this is a, a little formula for having life go the way that we want and everything ending up tidy in the end. This is not a guarantee to make things go better for us with those who are at odds with us. It may and it may not. I'm batting about 50-50 in that regard as I look over the, the last three or four decades of trying to live this out in my feeble attempts. Jesus gives us just one reason that we are called to live like this, with this ridiculous, indiscriminate quality towards, of love towards all. And that's so that we will look like our dad. So that we will put the loving heart of our Heavenly Father on display for this world. Like father, like son and daughter. As Mark Laberton said last Sunday, we follow an enemy-loving God. You are my enemy. I'm called to love you. An enemy-loving God? Isn't that a bit of an overstatement? 
Really, is God an enemy-loving God? Is that consistent with what the Scripture teaches? Exhibit A, me. An obnoxious atheist trying to talk Christians out of their faith, becoming the object of God's affection and his passionate pursuit of me to draw me into his love for me. Exhibit B, the rest of you, without exception. As we heard read earlier, Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love. He puts his love on display in this, that while we were still sinners, an offense to God, God or Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, it says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. As long as we think of ourselves as the righteous offended ones being mistreated by the unrighteous offensive ones, we will struggle to love those who wrong us. It is only when we recognize that we are absolutely on equal footing with every other human being as ones who wrong others and see that we are all equally in need of God's forgiveness, us included, and equally recipients of the, the grace of God through Christ, us included. It's only then that we are set free to love all equally. I've been uh, loving reading Leo Tolstoy's uh, book, Resurrection, that I just discovered, the last book that he wrote. It's about a man who is seeking to put right the many wrongs that he has committed earlier in his life. And at one point, he is trying to help a woman that he has deeply wronged. And she's rude to him, and she rejects his help, and she continues to make choices that he finds completely offensive. He stood behind her, silently looking at her back. He couldn't remember which came first. Did pity for her first enter his heart? Or did he first remember his own sins? his own repulsive actions, the very same for which he was condemning her. Anyhow, he both felt himself guilty and pitied her. The thought that he had forgiven her heightened his feeling of pity and of tenderness for her, and he wished to comfort her. Nekudov took leave, and he went out with such peace, joy, and love toward everybody in his heart as he had never felt before. The certainty that no action of Maslava's could change his love for her filled him with joy and raised him to a height which he had never before attained. Let her wrong him. That was her affair. He loved her not for his own sake, but for her sake and for God's sake. Jesus goes on, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or as another translation puts it, what credit is that to you? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet or bless only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Another translation says, what's unusual about that? Do not even pagans do that? So Jesus takes two groups that a typical Jewish person of the day would have seen as being at the bottom rung of the moral ladder. Those tax collectors, those Jews who not only collaborated with the hated Roman occupiers, 
but who also enriched themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews, and those pagans, those Gentiles, those non-Jews, who the Jews tended to lump together as being unholy and offensive to God. Jesus says, if you love only those who love you, how does that set you apart? I'll never forget the trip that Mark Blyer and I took to Nepal where I I led a seminary in a suitcase. Uh, We were uh, privileged to be able to go there right after a huge earthquake that caused incredible devastation in the region where we were. And uh, we went up into the Himalayas and uh, went to a village, and the villagers there told us that after the earthquake, uh, because it was so remote, they had no help coming in, and, and they were struggling. It was a terrible time for them. And they said that one of the things they noticed is that no, there were Muslims, Hindus, uh, and Hindus in their villages. No Muslims came to help anybody, not even fellow Muslims. A few Hindu priests showed up, but they only came to help fellow Hindus, and they charged for their services when they did. But then the Christians came, going from village to village at cost to themselves, bringing supplies and giving them away indiscriminately, caring for whoever had a need. As a result of that putting on display of the heart of God, hundreds of Hindus and Muslims became followers of Christ. Jesus says, taking care of our own, that comes naturally. That's love, but that's only part of the story. Jesus calls us to something more, to a supernatural sort of love, which leads us to the last verse. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Wait a minute. This whole passage was challenging enough before we get to that point. Well, now it's impossible. Oh, really? So that's really, Jesus, that's all you're asking me? Just be perfect like God is perfect? But this is not, I'm convinced, an impossible standard that, God, that Jesus is hanging over our heads in condemnation of us. This is actually a really encouraging and challenging invitation. Here's why I say that. This, this word, perfect, is the Greek word teleos, and it has several nuances to it. This is a word that means mature rather than young and still developing. It's a word that means expert rather than still learning, being an amateur. It's a word that means complete rather than uh, still missing some things. And it's a word that means perfect rather than falling short of a standard. So when you know that about this word and you see it in this context, suddenly this closing comment by Jesus not only makes sense, but we can hear it as the invitation that it is meant to be. In the verses just before this one, Jesus is saying, loving Those who love you, that's that's love, that's good, but that's only part of what it means to love. That's the natural part, and it's good that you're loving some, but, but that's an incomplete or an immature, an imperfect way of living out a life of love. Instead, he calls us in obedience to himself as our king and in imitation of his own love, he calls us to see it the rest of the way through, to to finish out what has only been partly framed in, to have a complete and a mature love, which is a love for all, rather than an incomplete and an immature love, which is loving only those who love us. That's when our love will become 
something unusual, something supernatural, something out of the ordinary and worth this world's paying attention to in this this give-what-you-get world of ours. And I just think it's so important to remind us of this at this point. This is not on us. We are God's children. He has brought us to life spiritually. He is making us new. His love has poured into us as his people and has filled us. And this is a work that we can expect God to be doing on us by his spirit in Christ. We won't ever do it perfectly, but we can do it well. And each day we can do it better, God helping us. And when we do, we will hold before this world of ours a taste of the Father's love that is unlike anything that we've ever seen before. So I have to address this, but still I have this problem with what you're saying question, and that is this. One of the things that makes this invitation from Jesus so hard to do is the gripping power, the tyranny of our feelings. Jesus calls us to live a life of love. Yes, but what about when someone really wrongs me? What about when someone wrongs someone I love? What about when someone wrongs and offends God? On an emotional level, everything in us wants to give back to others what they are dishing out to us. It's that, oh yeah, kind of reflex of justice that resides in all of us. Somebody at school rejects you. Somebody at work wrongs you. Somebody in your neighborhood is rude to you. Boom, the doors close. When someone's hostile to us, when someone seems bent on making life difficult for us, or when someone says something or does something that we know is contrary to the will of God and an offense to him, Justice rears up its head, and it seems to demand some sort of eye-for-an-eye response. And our feelings tell us that that's our job and that that's an, an appropriate response to pull back, to push away, to punish. So think about this. Really what's happening in that moment is we are letting the other person's way of treating us or those that we love be the Lord of our response. That's what's commanding our obedience. You did this to me, therefore this is how I must relate to you. Jesus says, no, actually I'm the Lord, not your feelings. And I say, love your enemies in spite of how you feel. For the past generation or two, the evangelical church has increasingly seen truth and love as two separate modes of being. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. These are separate weapons that we deploy in different circumstances. Either I love you or I speak the truth to you. But according to Jesus, we are never given permission to stop loving the person who has wronged us or who has wronged God. Speak the truth, yes, but don't ever stop loving. Speak the truth in love. That is a part of love. It is human nature to base our giving on our getting, to love those who love us, to pull back from those who pull back from us, to be cold to those who are cold to us, but Jesus calls us to something more. 
Years ago, uh, a friend of mine who was in leadership in the church began to, I don't know a better way to say this, sour on me as the pastor of the church. And he began actively to undermine everything that I was trying to accomplish and bring about. Finally, baffled, I, I called him in and, and, and told him what it seemed that he was doing and, and asked if he could explain what was going on. And he said, oh, no, you're absolutely right. I've decided that you are incompetent and that you are not to be trusted, and I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of here. And then he cut off our friendship, and when he came to church, he made a point of, of sitting directly behind the person in the row in front of him so he wouldn't have to look at me while I preached. I mean, this was a friend of mine. I mean, you can imagine how deeply hurtful this was to me. But by the grace of God, just as this began to unfold, God put it on my heart to begin to pray for him. Not to pray that God would give him you know what, but to pray that God would bless him. I began to thank God every day for this man, to thank God every day for his presence in my life, for the gift that God meant that to be. And I asked God to bless him in spite of the hurt that I was experiencing. Because of that, whenever I ran into him, what rose up in me by the grace of God was, was not hurt or fear, but was a gladness to see this man. And I'd walk up to him, tell him I was glad to see him, sometimes give him a hug. He'd stiffen, wouldn't look at me, pull back, turn away. But by praying for him each day, God helped me to see him as someone whom God loved. It, it allowed me to keep God in the picture every time I saw him. And to see him as someone that God wanted me to love as well in order that the love of God might be put on display in his life. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So what's the situation that you face right now with someone? Where someone is hostile toward you or seems to have it out for you, has said about making your life difficult? Or maybe someone that you see as hostile or offensive towards God. What would it look like to choose to see that person with reference to God as someone created in the image of God and therefore, just on that basis, deserving of your regard? What might it look like to bless that person and to seek God's best for them and to be willing to be part of the answer to that prayer? And what might it mean to move toward that person with a heart of life-giving generosity, responding to their needs rather than responding to how they have treated you? Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've uh, just read a passage that invites us into something of which we are utterly incapable out of our own power and strength. Utterly. And yet, 
This is how you've loved us. This is the sort of love that you have poured into us. This is the sort of love with which you receive us every time we turn towards you. So Lord, we say yes to your invitation that as we turn and go out into this world, that you would make us fountains of that same love of yours for the people you place around us. May it be so, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King.